We're working our way through the Ten Commandments, also known as the Law of God. They are ten laws that God gave to his people, the Israelites, to instruct them on how to relate to him and each other. And for us today, these laws help us understand the kind of heart that God is working to create in us. If you've given your life to Jesus, then you have his spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you. But you're still stuck in a broken and sinful human body with things like broken and sinful thoughts and desires. And every moment of every day, you and I get to choose who we follow and obey. The Holy Spirit or our sinful, broken human flesh. The Ten Commandments help us understand where the Holy Spirit is working to lead us. And that's helpful because when we hear his voice, we will be able to recognize it more easily and hopefully obey more readily. And so today we're looking at commandment number eight. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, where the Lord plainly says, you shall not steal. In its simplest form, I believe we can accurately define stealing as taking or holding on to what does not belong to you. Taking or holding on to what does not belong to you. When you think about it, we're generally not all that alarmed by the epidemic immorality in our society because naturally we view the most widespread behaviors in our society as normal. They're not shocking anymore because we've become conditioned to their presence and their frequency. And stealing is definitely one of those behaviors that's so widespread, we're just not shocked by it anymore, are we? I mean, just think about it. In my middle-class suburb, I know that there are people walking around every night checking if cars are unlocked so that they can take anything that's in them. Sometimes they break the windows to get into them. We've had somebody try to break into our carport, and many of you have had people try to break into your garage or your shed or maybe even your home. If you park downtown in Vancouver, you know that you cannot leave any valuables in view in your vehicle. And some police will even recommend that you actually leave your vehicle unlocked because if you don't, they will break a window to get in to search and see if there's anything valuable. There are porch pirates everywhere. And if you're like me, you get mad when the Amazon guy doesn't ring the doorbell and he just leaves the package out there in the open because you're thinking, are you trying to get my package stolen? I mean, just think about that. In the middle of the suburbs, and you have to be concerned that if a package is left out in the open on your doorstep, clearly for you, for just an hour, there's a chance that someone might take it. That, that's crazy. That's crazy how prevalent theft is. I mean, think of all the places that we have locks because we all understand that there are people everywhere who will steal from us if they have the opportunity. If you go to the pool and all you're putting in the locker is your clothing, you still got to lock it because there's a chance that someone at the public pool will steal your clothing while you're swimming. Your house has locks. Your vehicle has locks. Your briefcase, if you use one of those, probably has a lock on it. Your bicycles have locks. We have to put digital locks called passwords on everything, every email account, every online store we shop at. Why? Because there's so many people that would love to steal our credit card information. 
Stores have RFID chips on everything they can because shoplifting is so prevalent. I mean, I mean, look at what's happening in America right now in the midst of all of the racial protests. There are so many people participating who don't care about racial injustice at all and are just stealing from everywhere that they can. Why? For one reason. Because they can. The normal deterrence and security measures are not effective right now. And so immediately, thousands of people start stealing stuff. Immediately. Some of you have security systems on your home. If you're in America, maybe you have a gun in your home. You may have a tracking system on your vehicle. Stealing is everywhere. It's rampant. And we we just build our society around doing the best we can to mitigate mitigate the ever-present threat of theft. We're so used to all of this that we forget this is not how the world is supposed to be. This is not the kind of world that God created and handed over to Adam and Eve. The world that God gave us in the beginning was a world of safety and security, free of the worry and concern created by the ever-present threat of thievery. God gave us a world where we had more than enough, and it didn't even cross our minds to take something that somebody else had because we were totally satisfied. How things are today is not how things were meant to be. And so God tells his people, the Israelites, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. Thievery is not to take place among my people, says the Lord. When someone steals from you, it's not a good feeling, is it? You feel violated because you feel like a, a place or a space that, that you thought was safe is now no longer safe. You thought that the people around you were, were trustworthy, and now you feel like they might not be. Clearly, there's someone in the area who's not. And it bothers you deeply because most of the time, you know that they're going to get away with it. You know, here in Canada, we've got such a liberal justice system that even if they get caught, they're not going to go to jail, and they're not going to have to pay us back. It's just not going to happen, and we're left frustrated by the lack of justice. We don't like it when people steal from us. We're, we're morally outraged. We all become justice advocates when we're the victims, but we're also experts at justifying the thievery that we participate in, aren't we? Well, what do you, what do you mean, Jeff? I'm, I'm not a thief. Take a look at your outline. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he asked them, you, therefore, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? In other words, Paul says, check yourself. Check yourself. What you're telling other people about, what you're telling other people they shouldn't do, what you're declaring is wrong, are you doing it yourself? If the CRA or the IRS knew everything about your finances, would they consider you a man or woman of integrity? Remember what Jesus said about paying taxes? I do, because I don't like it. (laughs) Keep in mind that the Caesar at this time was an evil man who claimed to be God. And yet Jesus, who actually is God, (laughs) said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus said, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. If you're cheating on your taxes, if you're withholding certain information and not reporting, or under-reporting sources of income, you're stealing. 
You're stealing. It's thievery. Yeah, Jeff, but I mean, I mean, Apple and Amazon and all the big corporations, I mean, they don't even pay taxes. Not really. I know. I know. The system is corrupt. The Bible calls this economic system of the world Babylon. And here's God's long-term plan for the world's economic system. He's going to burn it all to the ground, and the people who worship it are going to follow it to hell. So tell me, are they your role models? Are they your role models for how to handle your taxes and finances? Are they the example that we want to refer to in order to justify our own thievery? I don't think so. I don't want what's coming to them. I don't want it. If you're not working all of the hours your company is paying you for, you're stealing. If you're taking sick days when you're not actually sick, you're stealing. Remember the basic definition of stealing. It's taking or holding on to what does not belong to you. Let me share some more examples of thievery that just abound in our culture. Embezzlement, extortion, and racketeering, unreasonably high interest rates, talking about things like payday loans, high interest rates on credit cards, rigged gambling, larceny, break-ins, and burglary. Somebody's probably thinking, I'm so glad Pastor Jeff is finally going to address the scourge of rigged gambling so that I can go gamble at an honest establishment. Unjust taxation, hijacking, kidnapping. Filing false insurance claims, governmental waste, excessive personal, city, provincial, or national debt. It's thievery. Falsely billing clients or falsely billing your employer. Misappropriating company or employee funds. Or or how about this one? Wasting time at work. Wasting time at work. Hop on the internet. Hop on Facebook. Chat a little bit with a friend, shoot off an email, watch some dumb YouTube videos, read a BuzzFeed article, take a quiz to find out what household appliance you are. The average employee wastes two hours per day. Two hours per day. That's stealing. Why? Because you're getting paid for it. You're getting paid to work, and instead of providing the work, you're just taking the money and not providing any service in return. And you might think, oh, oh, again, Jeff, man, I'm a working class man. I'm just balancing the scales here. But, but if you go to Tim Hortons and you buy a box of 20 Timbits, because Timbits are delicious, everybody knows this. But when you get home, you find out there's only 15 in the box. You're going to be upset, right? Well, well, why? Because you paid for 20. You paid for 20 and you got 25% less. You only got 15. That's how employers feel when their employees waste two hours per day and they steal 25% of their workday from their employer. It's stealing. This is so bad. We think nothing of things like going to our job and using our current employer's resources to look for another or a better job. We'll photocopy our resume on our current employer's photocopier so that we can go hand it out to try and find a better job. We'll take job interviews on the phone on company time. And by the way, employers, if you're interviewing someone for a job and they're clearly using the time of their current employer to do the interview with you, might I suggest that you would be foolish to expect them to be any more industrious once they are under your employee? 
How about this one? Not paying or underpaying your employees. Not paying or underpaying your employees. That's stealing. Taking supplies from your place of work. Stealing intellectual property. Personally convicting here. Illegal downloads. Plagiarism. Taking credit for something that you didn't do. Taking credit for something that you didn't create that doesn't belong to you. Listen, just because everyone does it doesn't make it right. Our source of morality, the way that we define right and wrong, is not by what the society around us is doing. We define right and wrong by what the Word of God says. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, part of what it means to follow Jesus. God doesn't change. He doesn't change with the times or with the flow of society and trends because God is perfect. He doesn't need to change. He doesn't need to update his values. They're perfect. But Jeff, I mean, I mean, I mean listen, then, then I'd be living completely differently to everybody else. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. And that was the point when God gave this commandment to his people thousands of years ago. God said, I want you to be different. I want you as a people to live a different, better, higher way than the nations around you. I want them to look at you and notice that you are different because I want you to reflect me, not the culture around you. I want you and the way you live to reflect me, says the Lord. And this was, this was radical at the time this no stealing ever kind of idea. It's still radical, obviously. You see, we're all very concerned with our own individual rights, aren't we? But we're far less concerned with our individual responsibilities. And God's law says that we have the right to not be stolen from, but we also have the responsibility to not steal from others. And often we have a hard time from this, because a hard time with this, sorry, because if I ask you, you know, should anyone ever steal from you? You'll likely reply, well, no, well, no, Jeff, absolutely not. I have a right not to have my property stolen. But if I ask you, well, then do you have a responsibility to never steal from anyone else? You might reply, well, well, well Jeff, I mean, I mean, it's not that simple. There's, there's wealth inequality involved. And, and I mean, the company I work for makes a lot of money. They're not going to miss a little bit extra. And, and you don't know my circumstances. And listen, there is no asterisk on the Eighth Commandment. There's no room for you to anoint yourself the one exception. God says, do not steal, period. Now, as an aside, but an important one, this commandment is a clear endorsement of the right to own personal property. So anyone who claims that God is a communist or teaches that, that sharing, according to the Bible, means never owning anything yourself, they've got a real problem here with the Scriptures because you can't steal something if it doesn't belong to somebody else first. The model in Scripture is private property ownership, but we view all that we have as belonging to God. We're stewards of our property, but in the earthly economy, it does indeed belong to us. It's our private property. And so the concept of private property is not evil. In fact, it is affirmed by God himself right here in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. 
under the laws of the Old Testament, the sentence for stealing was effective because it was exponential restoration. Exponential restoration. That means you'd have to not only return what you stole or something identical to what you stole, but you'd have to actually return more than you stole. If you stole a sheep, you had to return four. If you stole an ox, you had to return five. If you found something that was lost and didn't immediately return it to the owner, when you returned it, you had to return it plus 20%. That's a good system, isn't it? I mean, it gives justice to the victim of the crime, and it creates a significant deterrent to theft. Because think about this. You steal a dollar, you got to pay back $5. You steal a car, you got to give back five cars. And we're watching you. You can't just go out and steal five more cars. You actually got to work this out. So maybe you got to become your victim's servant until you've worked enough years to pay back the equivalent of the value of five cars. And if you refuse, your punishment is going to get worse. It's going to get worse. What do you think happens in that context, in that type of culture? Well, real fast, people begin realizing stealing is just not worth it. Wouldn't this be great? I mean, you imagine someone who runs a Ponzi scheme that that stole hundreds of millions of dollars. They'd have to give it all back fivefold. We would sell everything that they own and divide up the funds among the victims. We would empty their bank accounts, and then they would spend the rest of their lives working as a servant in the homes of the people that they ripped off. That's justice. No white-collar prisons. No suspended sentence, no parole, no house arrest. You're vacuuming the houses of your victims. You're doing their dishes. You're washing their cars. You're mowing their lawns until the day you die because the amount you stole you can't possibly repay. That, that would be justice, seeing a Bernie Madoff or somebody like that working, vacuuming somebody's house. I think that would be tremendously satisfying from a justice perspective. Oh, man, Jeff, I'm I'm sure glad we're not under the law anymore. You know, you're right. We're not under the law. But there is a law that we are still under, and it's called sowing and reaping. In Galatians 6-7, Paul tells us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God tells us in his word, listen, what goes around comes around. If you rip people off, sooner or later, you will find yourself being ripped off. If you steal from others, sooner or later, you will find that others have stolen from you. Just ask the best rip-off artist in the Bible, Jacob. You remember the story. He ripped off his brother, Esau. He deceived his father, and he thought, man, I'm really getting ahead in life by doing all this cheating and deceiving and stealing, but He ends up having to flee for his life because his brother wants to kill him. And he takes shelter in the house of his uncle Laban. And guess what? Laban is just as much a swindler as Jacob is. Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he says, I want to marry her. Laban says, sure thing. Work for me seven years. She's yours. Jacob says, deal. He works the seven years, they have the wedding, they go into the tent on the wedding night, it's dark, Jacob has been drinking, he wakes up the next morning and he realizes he's married Leah, Rachel's sister, 
who is known for her great personality, shall we say. Jacob's furious, but Laban says, oh, oh, did I forget to mention that though we have a custom in our culture that, that says we have to marry off the older sister first. Don't worry, though. You can still marry Rachel, too, in exchange for seven more years of labor. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Our civic laws might not punish us or catch us in all the thievery that we engage in, but we will not escape the law of sowing and reaping. It is absolutely inevitable. So would you write this down on your outlines? The law of sowing and reaping will ensure that we never truly get away with thievery. It will ensure we never truly get away with thievery. So what should we do if we realize that we've stolen from someone? I'm going to keep this really short and really simple. We're to do everything we can to make restitution, everything we can to pay them back and make it right. We're to apologize to them, confess to them, do everything we can to repay them, make it right, and ask for their forgiveness. Now, they may or may not forgive us. That's beyond our control. We do this to be pleasing to the Lord and to honor him by doing what is right in his sight. So write this down. If we've stolen from anyone, the Lord expects us to make restitution. If we've stolen from anyone, the Lord expects us to make restitution, to do our best to make things right. Do you remember when Jesus told Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector, that he wanted to stay at his house? Zacchaeus was so overjoyed at being accepted by Jesus that his immediate response was to commit to make restitution for the thievery that he had engaged in. There was an immediate recognition that if he was going to follow Jesus, he needed to do all he could to make things right with those he had defrauded. In Luke 19.18, it says this, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold fourfold. There's this desire to make things right with those we have wronged when you begin to follow Jesus. I believe there's a a strong connection between work and stealing, work and stealing. In Ephesians 4.28, it's on your outlines, Paul says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. You see, after man fell in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that he was now to work. He was to toil for things like food with the cost of the sweat of his face, as Scripture says. But this work wasn't just a consequence. It wasn't just a punishment for the fall. It was also a protection. Because in his newly sinful state, in his fallen body, the old adage that is true of us was true of Adam. Idle time is the devil's workshop. And idle hands are the devil's tools. If you're not busy with work, if you're not busy with something productive, you will be more vulnerable to sin, especially the temptation to steal, to cheat, to take shortcuts. 
Paul's command here, when he talks about working with his hands, isn't just referring to manual labor. It's talking about whatever your work is, you should work hard at it. Now, as a side note, it's my personal opinion, just based on observation, that if you're not working hard, you're also generally going to be more vulnerable to depression. Yes, we are supposed to find our our sense of purpose and self-worth in our relationship with Jesus and who he says we are. But God also created us and, and designed us to find fulfillment in the tasks that we do over the course of our lives. God designed us to be productive. He designed us to contribute to our community. And when we refuse to work, it almost inevitably affects our emotional and mental health. It's not good for us. And then Ephesians 4.28 finishes with Paul telling us another reason that a man should work hard. He says that he may have something to give him who has need. That he may have something to give him who has need. You see, the Christian's goal is never simply to have enough for just himself. The Christian's goal is to be able to be increasingly generous as generous as the Lord would have us be. This means that if we have the option to retire at 50, if we've earned enough to cover our retirement, unless God has told us something else specifically, we should keep working. Why? Because now we've got the opportunity to be even more generous with our income. We don't need it anymore. We can just use it to bless other people. We can be a conduit for God to work money through our lives towards other people and other sources. If we own a company and it's making a good living for us, we should still care about growing the business because we could generate more income that would allow us to be even more generous, to bless others. Paul's point is that our financial goals should not include only us, but blessing others. And I think we would see our prayers answered a lot more than we would expect if we prayed, Lord, I'm good. You've taken care of all my needs, but I would love to have even more to give. I don't need any more personally, but Lord, if you would love to give me more so that I could give it out on your behalf, I would love to be used that way. If we prayed that way, I think we would be amazed at what the Lord might want to do through us. If we would be open to God using us to bless other people financially rather than simply meeting our own needs. That kind of thinking, it doesn't come naturally to us, but it's how God wants us to think about the money that we earn through our work. Let's talk some more about the connection between work and stealing. Because Jesus says, not only are are we to be known for our integrity because we don't steal, we're also to be known for what we proactively do. We're to be known for our work ethic. Jesus said, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him Two, and you may know that Jesus was speaking about a rule that existed in the Roman Empire. Any Roman soldier could ask you to carry his shield or some of his supplies for one mile, and you had to comply. It was the law. But what Jesus said is he said, when that happens, go with the soldier for two miles. This is literally where the phrase comes from, go the extra mile. Jesus was the first person to say that. That's what he's saying. Do more than is required of you. Don't do the bare minimum. View yourself as a servant in life because yet again, it will make you stick out from everyone else. It will mark you as distinct. 
because we are all naturally self-serving. We naturally want to do the bare minimum unless it greatly personally benefits us. And so when we go above and beyond that, not just because it benefits us, but because it benefits and blesses other people, it's a witness. It's a testimony of our faith. Now, if you're an employer, listen up. In James chapter 5, we read this. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. James is describing a situation where there's an employer, and he's not honoring the contract that he made with his workers. He's not paying them what he said he would, or maybe he's not paying them at all. And James says, listen, employer, business owner, God is watching. He is taking note. You think you're getting ahead by mistreating your employees, but really you're like an animal being fattened up before it's slaughtered. You're just setting yourself up for a massive fall. You see, Jesus cares about employees being treated fairly by their employer. Don't forget, Jesus came from a poor working class family. He worked as a manual laborer for half his life. He was a craftsman in Nazareth. Employers, treat your employees fairly. The Lord is watching. If you are an employee, listen up. Titus 2 says, exhort bondservants, that's servants, to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing in all things. That means have a good attitude. Do a good job. Don't be argumentative. Don't be the source of tension and trouble in your workplace. Paul says, not answering back. In other words, don't be disrespectful. Don't mistreat your boss. Not pilfering. Don't steal but showing all good fidelity, that means being faithful in everything, that they, those who are observing you, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying when you do a good job representing Jesus in your workplace, you bring glory to the name of Jesus. You enhance the reputation of the Lord. Write this down. Paul's point is that your work is your witness. Your work is your witness. I don't know how to be a good witness for the Lord at my job. Start by doing a good job. Start by respecting those in authority over you. Start by working hard. Start by excelling at the tasks that your employer has given you. Start there. That's how you get started being a good witness at work. Now, unfortunately, many of us have seen this principle at work in a negative way, haven't we? We've had a business dealing or some other interaction with someone who claimed to follow Jesus, but they did subpar work. They overcharged. They failed to deliver. They did shoddy work. And guess what? We're not really interested in what that person has to say about Jesus, are we? And we're believers. It's real simple. We represent the name of Jesus. So when we work with integrity, it improves the reputation of Jesus. When we don't work with integrity, it damages the reputation of Jesus. So let me ask you, is your work ethic, is your integrity at work improving or damaging the reputation of Jesus at your place of work? 
It's important to think about that. You know, there's nothing more pathetic than a Christian with a poor work ethic who has convinced themselves that they're being persecuted at their place of work for following Jesus. And we all know, no, you're being persecuted for being a lazy bum. And you're using your faith as an excuse to avoid taking responsibility for your actions. Don't do that. Don't do that. Represent Jesus well through your work. Now, I would be remiss and intentionally avoiding talking about this if I didn't talk about Malachi chapter 3. Because in Malachi chapter 3, God addresses the subject of his people stealing from him. Here's what God says. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. Now, please don't play down what God is saying here. He's being very clear. God is telling his people, you've stolen from me personally. You've taken what is mine. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? I mean, this is like our kids when they're caught, right? Well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I, I don't understand. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. So God gets explicit about what he means. He says, here's how you've stolen from me. In tithes and offerings. In tithes and offerings. I don't want you to be confused, God says. Tithes refers to 10% of our gross income. It's 10% off the top. In fact, in Scripture, it's also referred to as first fruits, the idea being that our first and our best goes to God. Now, unfortunately, the government has placed themselves upstream even ahead of God and made sure that they get theirs before God can get what's his. But to the best of our ability, we're to give God the tithe, the first and the best of our income. And let me just say this to all of you believers who are familiar with the concept of tithing. Whatever your theology is on tithing, Whatever you believe may have changed between the Old and New Testaments, the Old and New Covenants, it is absolutely clear that none of the New Testament writers expected believers to use the New Covenant as an excuse to give less, okay? That, that, that's obvious. You know, if you want to say, well, well, in the New Testament, you only have to give what the Lord puts on your heart. In none of the New Testament writers' minds was there the possibility that somebody would use that as an excuse to give less. On the contrary, it was an encouragement to give more. Now, the term offerings refers to giving that is above and beyond the tithe. It's not giving in place of the tithe. Offerings are given above and beyond the tithe. This may include special projects at your church, like a building project. It may include ministries that you support because they offer resources or or teachings, Bible studies that help you grow in your faith. And so you want to support them even though they're not actually your church. It may include missionaries and mission organizations. It may include direct giving to those you personally know who are in need. Anything in that sort of arena. God says, you've stolen from me by not giving me the tithe, which belongs to me, and by not giving offerings money and resources that I gave you, that I put in your hands so that you could give them to somebody else. I wanted them to flow through you, but instead you held on to them and you kept them for yourself. You did this with tithes, money that was supposed to go back to God 
and you did this with offerings, money that was supposed to go to other people in ministries. And God says, you're stealing from me. You're filling up your bank account with what is mine. And so can we just pause for a moment to, to acknowledge the obvious? Because whoever you are, whatever your theology is, you do not want to find yourself in the place where you are knowingly, willfully, and repeatedly stealing from God. Can we just agree on that? You do not want to be repeatedly stealing from God, right? God says, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, here's the point. Just because everybody else was robbing God in the nation of Israel didn't make it okay, and it still doesn't. If you can find a whole bunch of other believers who will tell you, yeah, I don't really tithe either, that doesn't make it okay. just means a whole bunch of believers are robbing God. And God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. That's a reference to the tabernacle, the temple, the synagogue, and in our context, the church. And I need us to understand that. The Bible says you're not just to send your tithe wherever you want. You can't just send it to your favorite Christian radio station. God says it's to go to his house. It's to go to the church. Well, well, why, Jeff? It's really, really simple. That's God's plan for how the church is funded. That's God's plan for how the church has money to operate. The church still has to pay bills with, with real money. The church can't call up the electric company and say, hey, listen, as per our usual agreement, you will be compensated for the electricity we use this month with eternal rewards in heaven. I don't know if you know this, but the power company does not accept that as payment. Mortgage companies do not accept that as payment. Banks do not accept that as payment. If a church has to buy a chair, a sound system, anything, they got to use real money to pay for it. People who work for the church, God's desire is that they would actually be able to make a living off of their job. It's his desire that they would be taken care of. And so God's plan for meeting that need is through his people, through the tithes of his people. That's how God funds his church. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. As you probably know, this is the only time in scripture that God says, test me, try me. See what happens. This one area, tithes and offerings, is the only time God says, test me and see what happens. Because God promises to take care of the needs of those who trust him with their tithes and offerings. And if you're thinking, and I understand, if you've never done the tithing thing, you're, you're going to be thinking, man, Jeff, that 10%, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. And when you look at what it is for you, you immediately begin thinking of it in terms of like, oh, that, that's a car payment. Or that's our annual vacation. And I know it can seem overwhelming, but I need to remind you of the truth of Scripture. God doesn't own 10%. He owns it all. He just asks for 10%. But Psalm 24, 1 declares, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And so it's no big deal for God to take care of you and me. It's no big deal for God to more than make up for anything that we trust him with. I really do believe what many have pointed out about tithing. It's far better to live on 90% that is blessed by the Lord than to live on 100% that is cursed. 
because that 90% that is blessed is worth far, far more, practically and eternally. In Haggai 1.6, God talks about what it looks like to be cursed in our finances because we refuse to honor him with our money. We refuse to tithe. We refuse to give out what he has put in our hands to give. This is how the Lord describes what it looks like to be cursed. He says, you've sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. You see, you can hang on to that extra 10%, but it's not going to make your life easier. In fact, God says that he's going to make sure that it's never quite enough. You're always just a little short. If God gave you $10 this week, $1 of it is his. If God gave you a million dollars this week, we we should probably talk, do lunch, do coffee. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But 100,000 of it belongs to the Lord. And listen, if you don't like me talking about this, just, just please remember, these are not my words. These are God's words from God's word. So you can be mad with him. Some of you are offended because when I talk about money, I'm talking about your God. And I'm telling you that your God needs to bow down to the true and living God. And you might think, well, well, Jeff, I don't have enough money to worship money. How can I worship money when I don't have any? But listen, your level of wealth has nothing to do with whether or not you worship money. Poor people worship money. Rich people worship money. Middle class people worship money. It's all about who is calling the shots in your life. When money says jump, do you say, how high? Do you believe that money is what is going to make your life whole, going to solve all your problems? Because if you believe that money has greater power to fix your life than God does, then you're worshiping money. And money is your God. Money is your hope. You can worship God with your money, but you cannot worship God and money. The prosperity gospel is wrong. The poverty gospel is wrong too. Having lots of money or not having a lot of money is neither spiritually inferior or superior. The issue is stewardship. The issue is managing what God has placed in your hands in a way that is pleasing to him, regardless of how much or how little he's placed in your hands. If you're comfortable robbing God, then you're probably going to be comfortable robbing your employer or employees. You're probably going to be comfortable robbing the government. Because to rob God on an ongoing basis, you have to get really good at justifying yourself to yourself in your own mind. And if you can manage to justify robbing God, then it's not going to be very difficult for you to justify robbing others in various ways. Our Heavenly Father is the ultimate giver. He gave His only Son for us. Jesus is the ultimate giver, giving us the gift of eternal life at the cost of His life. And God wants us to be like Him. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to be givers. And if we want to represent God rightly, we have to be givers. We have to be generous. Here's the issue at the heart of stealing and why it's such a big deal. 
It's on your outlines. In Romans 8.32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Listen, when we steal, we're saying that God has not freely given us all things. We're saying he is not provided for all of our needs. He has not turned out to be more than enough for us. He's not taken care of us. And so we have to steal in order to take care of ourselves and to make up for the poor provision we've received from our heavenly father because he's not a good father who takes care of us. We are insulting God when we steal. We are demeaning his character and we're revealing that we have a lack of faith in his promises. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. If your focus is on living for the Lord and loving the Lord, he's going to take care of you. He's going to give you what you need. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. When I steal, I'm claiming that I'm a better judge of what I need. I'm a better judge of what will satisfy me than my heavenly Father is. That's the heart issue of stealing. Stealing is not an out there problem. It's not everybody else's fault or society's fault. Stealing is a heart issue. It's an in here problem. But not only have we accrued a debt to other people, you see, we've accrued a debt to God because he made us to love. And when we don't do that, we're stealing. God made us to serve, and when we don't do that, we're stealing. And more than anything, God made us to worship and know him. And so when we don't do that, we're stealing. We're stealing from our creator. God made us to glorify him. And when we worship something else, when we glorify something else, we're stealing glory that should belong to the Lord. God made the universe to reveal his glory. And so when we ascribe the origins of the universe to something else, refusing to give credit to the one who made it all, we're we're stealing, we're plagiarizing from the maker of the universe. All sin is, is debt. All sin is ultimately stealing from God. But in Colossians 2, it says this, you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the certificate of debt with its requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he, Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. If we take our debts to Jesus, what happens? Well, think about this. When we take our debts to Jesus, we become the thief on the cross on one side who declares, Lord, you're innocent. You didn't have this debt, but but you paid my debt anyway. Please, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to that thief? He said, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. The other thief refused to acknowledge his debt. He'll spend eternity separated from God. He 
See, when we take our debts to God and we say, Lord, I've, I've got a debt that I can't possibly pay back. But I have heard that you've paid it for me. And if that's true, Lord, I want to accept that debt forgiveness. We will find a God who says, hey, come into my family. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Your debt has been paid. You owe me nothing. Come and be a part of my family. We stole from Jesus for our whole lives. And his response is to pay our debt at the cost of his life so that his father can adopt us and we can become his brothers and sisters and share in his inheritance. It is absolutely ridiculous how good God is, how loving God is. It is absolutely ridiculous. We serve an amazing, amazing God. We have a heavenly father who loves us. We have a savior who gave his life for us, and we have a Holy Spirit who is with us and present in this moment in our lives. We serve such a good God and such a good Father. And so with that, would you just bow your head and close your eyes wherever you're at? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to trust you and to honor you by not stealing in any area of life because, Lord, we know we have a heavenly Father who takes care of us. He's a good Father who loves his children and provides for all of their needs. Father, we believe that. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for any time we have engaged in actions or thinking that would require you to not be a good father because we know that we were wrong. We know that we were believing a lie. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for insulting you and your kindness. And, Father, correct our thinking. If there's anyone or or any area where we need to make restitution and go and make things right, Lord, would you help us to do that? Give us the boldness and the faithfulness to follow through and bring those things to mind right now. Bring them to our attention, Lord, and help us to follow through. If there's anything in our life that we need to turn away from right now, Lord, would you illuminate it so that we can obey you, Jesus? Father, thank you again that you love us and you take care of us. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now. Because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.